0: There is solid historical evidence that Jesus of Nazareth existed. That he was a leader of sorts among the Jewish people in Israel some 2,000 years ago. Some considered him to be a prophet. Some believed he was the Messiah. But the Romans caught him and killed him. And just like they did with so many others who claimed to be a prophet or the Messiah... They declared their victory over this leader. In fact, between 150 BC and 150 AD, there were a whole series of Jewish attempts at revolution, revolting against Rome. And anytime this happened, Rome eventually would catch the leader. And violently destroy him. When that happened, these revolutionary groups would do one of two things. Every single time. They would, the people who survived, that is, they would either give up the movement. Say, we learned our lesson. We're out of here. We don't want any of that. We don't want to happen to us what happened to our leader. Or they would commit themselves to their revolution and find a new Messiah to lead them. And yet, after Jesus was executed, his followers did neither of those two things. The two things that all the followers of all the other Messiahs did. They did not give up their movement and they did not find A new Messiah. No, the early Christians did something that none of these other groups did. They insisted that their executed leader was indeed Israel's Messiah. That he was the Lord of the world. And that he was the one true God of the cosmos. Now that's quite a jump. I mean, when we look at the historical data, we see these things happening throughout those centuries. But there's this one particular group that makes a very outlandish claim. What can account for this historical anomaly? Well, the early Christians claimed that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel and the Lord of the world and the one and only creator God of the cosmos because... He was raised bodily from the dead. They put all of their eggs in the basket of Jesus' bodily resurrection three days after his crucifixion. The early Christians said, in other words, no resurrection, no Christianity. Now, some people argue that the early Christians invented these stories these stories about Jesus' resurrection. So instead of saying, no resurrection, no Christianity, this argument says, no Christianity, no resurrection. If Christianity did not exist, we would not be talking about the resurrection of Jesus because the Christians invented the resurrection of Jesus. So there's this bait, debate, which came first? The Christians Or the resurrection? Did the resurrection produce Christianity? Or were there a group of people that had developed this religion that produced the resurrection? Now, For the sermon this morning, I'm going to use the same format that I used in the message last week. First, I'm going to address an argument for Jesus' resurrection. Just one very small argument. And then for the second part of the sermon, I'm going to explore some of what it meant to the early Christians to claim that Jesus had been bodily raised from the dead. All right, starting with the debate. Now, there are many arguments against Christianity. Some of them are very serious and very powerful, and some of them are flimsy. Among those who do not believe the account that I just read, John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31, one influential view against that account is that what we're actually reading in the resurrection stories, these are actually the projections of the early Christians' hope. The hope that they had. You see, they had bought into Jesus. They had bought into his teaching. Like many other revolutionary bands in that day, they had found someone that they had decided and put all of their hopes into that this was the leader. And somewhere along the way, they had decided he was the Messiah. So when he died, these early Christians were shattered. They just couldn't believe it. They refused to stop believing. So the argument is actually rooted in a theory of social psychology developed in the late 1950s by Leon Festinger, and it's called the theory of cognitive dissonance. It goes like this. The disciples believed so deeply that Jesus was Messiah when he was executed, they couldn't let go of that belief. And so they zealously committed themselves to this hope, to this belief. And they began to tell others that Jesus was alive, that their beliefs were true. And they began to convert other people to it. And as these things go, the more people that bind to the claim, the easier it is to actually believe the claim. Because now you can point to all the other people who believe the same thing as you. Now, obviously, there are many different issues when it comes to belief or not regarding Jesus' resurrection. And this is just one particular way that some people look at the historical data and explain it. But there's a problem with this way of discounting the origins of Christianity. You see, after Jesus' death, the early Christians did not hold on to their beliefs about Jesus. They actually changed their beliefs about Jesus. The cognitive dissonance explanation is that John 20 was circulated by pious Christians who were unable to bear the loss of their beliefs. And yet the followers of Jesus never thought he would die. They didn't hold on to their beliefs about Jesus. They clearly changed their beliefs about Jesus. One point. In the Gospels, it shows you what I'm talking about. A very famous example. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus looks at his followers. He says, who do you say I am? Peter answers. Anybody know? You are the Christ, which literally means you are the Messiah. So Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. God, my father revealed this to you. And then Jesus immediately launches into explaining how the fact that he's the Messiah will mean that he's about to suffer and die. And when, G- when Jesus defines being the Messiah that way, what does Peter immediately do? He rebukes Jesus, which is quite an astounding thing, considering he's just said, this is the Messiah. And now he says, oh, you are the Messiah, but you've got this bit of it wrong. You see, Peter responds in the obvious way. He blurts out what what every Jewish person would have understood. The Messiah of Israel will not die at the hands of his enemies. His enemies will die at his hands. So in in the next verse, Jesus, Peter takes Jesus aside. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. This will not happen to the Messiah. Death does not happen to the Messiah. Jesus looks at Peter and what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, as far as Jesus' disciples were concerned, when Jesus called them to follow him, they were signing on for some kind of Jewish renewal movement. And at some point in the course of their travels, they began to identify him as the Messiah. But, and this is the critical point, their understanding of the Messiah fits squarely on the spectrum of the typical Jewish views concerning the Messiah. And while there were some variations among the ways the different groups of Jews thought about what the Messiah was and what he would accomplish and how he would accomplish, they all shared something in common. And it was this. There was no category for a dead Messiah. The Messiah could not die. The Messiah would not die. A shameful death at the hand of the Romans. Rome was not going to celebrate a victory over the Jewish Messiah. The Jewish Messiah was going to win the decisive victory over the pagans. This is what all the Jewish views had about the Messiah. And number two, that the Jewish Messiah would not tear down the temple. He would rebuild the temple and cleanse the temple. And number three, that the Jewish Messiah would bring a true God-given justice and peace to the world. Now, this was what the Jewish people believed. So the cognitive dissonance theory of social psychology can explain some phenomenon, but it does not explain the origins of Christianity because cognitive dissonance is an insight into how people hold on to a belief in the face of of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. The disciples never believed the Messiah would die in the first place. So by telling the resurrection stories. They were not refusing to come to terms with evidence which disproved their belief. No, John chapter 20 is it's, it's the disciples actually coming to terms with the evidence that did disprove their beliefs. Look, everybody agrees the gospel stories were written down many, many years after Jesus. And yes, they are weird stories. This is strange stuff. But they absolutely are not the projections of what people had always hoped for. Nobody had hoped for this. Nobody saw it coming. Now, there are other ways of discounting the story, but I'm just showing you how there are arguments in our culture discounting the resurrection that is not dealing with the historical data in a way that bears integrity. This is one of them. Now, don't get me wrong. I would never pretend to have found an argument that could force someone who is skeptical into admitting that Jesus must have been raised from the dead. Like I said last week, a person can always say, I can't think of a better ev- explanation for the evidence, but I know there is one because I am not going to give up my presupposition that people are not raised from the dead. Cautious agnosticism, like I said last week, is always an option. In fact, that's exactly what we see Thomas doing in this passage, right? I'm not going to believe a crazy story like that. Jesus raised from the dead. That was nowhere on his radar. It wasn't easy for him. He said, I refuse to believe that. I know you say that's the explanation for what's going on, but I refuse that there must be a better one out there. And as we saw last week, it's not just doubting Thomas. It's the women, it's Peter, it's all of the disciples. They were all astonished and confused and skeptical. Look, clearly for the ancients, the resurrection of Jesus' body was just as impossible to believe as it is for us. And yet, for some reason, they did believe it. The resurrection of Jesus is not the projection of hope. It was not invented after the fact to support Christianity. Jesus' bodily resurrection started Christianity. Or, at least you have to say, the belief in his bodily resurrection started Christianity. For many people, not everyone... The best and most reasonable explanation for the rise of Christianity is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. People really did see him and touch him and talk to him. Now, what I'm doing this week and last week is I'm attempting to clear away some of the misunderstandings and misreadings and flawed arguments against Christianity. For many people, again, not everyone, But for a lot of people, the Christian faith is difficult. Very difficult. But to be honest, for those who do believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, we too have a struggle to face. But our struggle is not with the fact of the resurrection. It's with the meaning of the resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning, he rose again as the beginning of the new world. A new world that Israel's God had always intended to make. This is the first and most important thing to know about Easter. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose as the beginning of the new world. Look at John chapter 20, verse 19, where I started our reading this morning. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, this is very strange. Strange. Jesus is a real physical person. You can see him and and hear him and and touch him and talk to him. He's solid and real. He has flesh and bones. The Resurrected Jesus isn't a spirit. He's not a ghost, but suddenly he can appear in a locked room. At one point later on in these stories, he vanishes up into thin air. Here is a person who has some of the qualities of a spirit of a ghost... Appearing, disappearing, going through locked doors, things like that. But he's also clearly real and physical and living and breathing and eating. He's a touchable person. Now this is weird stuff. We've got to see how strange and odd these stories are. And the only way it can make any sense is to read them in the context of the whole Bible. In the Bible, heaven and earth were not terms of geography heaven and earth were not in the bible heaven and earth are not two different locations in the universe earth here and heaven somewhere out there some forest place that you'll go to when you fly away on death the ancient jews believed that heaven and earth were two different dimensions of the same place not two different locations Most people in today's world imagine that heaven, by definition, cannot contain what we think of as a solid physical body. That's because in the West, we're Platonist in our hearts. We follow Plato. And we suppose that if there is a heaven, it must be non-physical. It must be beyond the reach of space and time and matter. But just suppose Plato was wrong. In that view of heaven. Just suppose heaven is not up. Just suppose all of the songs that we sing in the church about flying away. Just suppose all of the little sayings in our culture about heaven is up. Suppose all of those came from Plato and not the Bible. In other words, suppose that the Bible is right. Suppose that heaven and earth are twin halves of the world that God created to eventually come together. Suppose that what has kept them apart this whole time is that human creatures were put in charge of one of the halves of reality, were put in charge of the earthly part of creation, and humans rebelled. And that their rebellion generated a sufficient head of steam for the earth to declare independence from heaven. And suppose that this self-rule has become extremely powerful in keeping heaven and earth veiled from one another so that earth is tyrannized with the regular weapon of the tyrant, death itself. Now, suppose that the creator God had finally come in person to break the tyrant's weapon and to inaugurate the new world, a world in which the original purpose of the whole creation is restored. This is what the early Christians believed was going on with Jesus' resurrected body. What we are seeing in these very odd stories, stories that are so weird they invite skepticism. What we are seeing is the birth of the new creation. The power that has tyrannized the old creation has been broken and defeated and overthrown, and God's kingdom is now launched in power and glory on earth as in heaven. What we are witnessing in John 20 is what Jesus said would happen within the lifetime of his hearers. A new power has been let loose in the world, the power to remake what was broken in the fall, a power To heal what was diseased in the fall. The power to restore what was lost. The kingdom that Jesus had inaugurated. Strangely. Mysteriously. Through all of his healings. And all of his teachings. And all of his feasting. It is now unveiled. This is the beginning of the kingdom. Jesus' body. This is the prototype. Of the new creation. Now I'll point out two very practical things. This means for your life right now. First look at John chapter 20 verse 22. When he had said this he breathed on them and said to them. Receive the Holy Spirit and if you forgive the sins of anyone they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone it is withheld. At the heart of being a Christian is to turn away from sin and celebrate God's forgiveness and to announce that to the world. So Jesus gives his followers his spirit and he tells them to go and tell people in God's name and by his spirit that forgiveness is available to everyone who believes in Jesus. Now, part of this message is a warning. We must warn the world that sin is serious. It is a deadly disease. And unless we come to Jesus in repentance for our sins, death will continue to grow in our lives, and it will be the final note for us. Our job is to pronounce judgment over every death-filled work in this world. Our job is to pronounce judgment over all the particular death-filled ways of living that the tyrant has brought into our world. Every one of us will suffer the pain of injustice, the defilement of the fall, The scandal of the curse. But we are messengers of the fact that that is not the last word. A new way of life has been opened. The way of repentance and forgiveness. And we must announce this to a muddled and confused and still rebellious world. To us Westerners, this sounds a bit gloomy. Dredge up your sins in order to hear them declared forgiven. But it is far Far bigger than that. The death-filled ways of the old creation fill our lives and our world. But a completely different life, a way of love and reconciliation and healing and hope is here. It's a way of living that is unthinkable to to most people and most societies. It's just as unthinkable. As the resurrection itself. And that's the point. Welcome to Jesus' new world. One more thing the resurrection of Jesus means for our life here and now. When you read the resurrection stories. And you see this Jesus that's doing this weird stuff. He's eating, he's drinking, people are touching him, talking to him, seeing him, not recognizing him, but then recognizing him. When we're reading these stories, you need to fix it in your mind that that Jesus, what he is doing, who he is, what he's like, that is the future. Jesus is the future breaking in to the present. We see when we look at Jesus... That God's great work of redemption is not to deliver us from this world. All through John 20, we see it's the same Jesus that existed before his death. The marks of the nails are in his hands, the wound is in his side, a wound big enough that you can fit your hand into. This isn't a ghost. It's not someone pretending to be Jesus. It is him. But it's him transformed. The transformed body of Jesus is the beginning of God's new creation. In God's new creation, heaven and earth will come together everywhere. And for all of God's followers, not just Jesus. Jesus operates according to both dimensions. It's sometimes he's operating according to the dimension of heaven, moving through walls, things like that. I mean, none of us think anything about me praying at my house and Paula praying at her house and God being here and God being there and, and that locked door can't keep God out. That's the, That's the rules of heaven. We're comfortable thinking like that. But when you look at Jesus, he's operating according to those rules with a body. And he's operating with a body according to those rules. Now, of course, this is stretching for us. It stretches our imagination further than we normally like. Our way of thinking is so conditioned by the world of sin and death. And this is part of the challenge of the gospel. You see, I think that there are some who struggle with the fact of the resurrection And that's an important struggle and you need to enter into it and you need to look for evidence to help you. But I think there are others who are fine with the fact of the resurrection, but the meaning of the resurrection starts stretching you out of your comfort zone. The resurrection of Jesus does not mean everything's okay. We're going to heaven when we die. No, the resurrection of Jesus means that the life of heaven has been born on this earth. It's broken through. The resurrection of Jesus does not simply mean there is life after death. Now, it does mean that, but it means so, so much more than that. The resurrection of Jesus is God's deep affirmation of the goodness and the vital importance of the present created world. If, G- if God did not care about Jesus' body, he would have given him a body that didn't have wounds in it. Brand new, never existed before, all new. But he didn't. Because Jesus' pre-crucifixion body mattered to God. So there's a house next door to me. It's still dilapidated. Lots of people have offered to buy it. The owner isn't in the mood to sell it. Some people that have offered to buy it have said to me, they're going to offer this much, and as soon as they get it, they're knocking it down because it's, it's, it's gone. I say back to them, please don't buy it. Please don't do that. Our town needs these old houses renovated. God thinks like me. <laughs> God looks at the body of Jesus and doesn't say, it's too far gone says no God doesn't look at this world right now with oh, look last night at seven o'clock I'm walking home and, 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 and Friday night at seven o'clock I'm walking home from my office and, and the streets are filled with people there's concerts in town there's there's Jack Brown's and Billy Jack's and Clementine it's just teeming with people and as I'm walking home I've been reading and thinking about these stories you know what I think I think they got it right they love this world they love music And food and drinking and dancing. They love all of these embodied actions. And God is not going to treat all of that stuff like a certain friend of mine wants to treat my neighbor's house. God's going to treat it just like I hope somebody treats my neighbor's house, looks at it in all of its brokenness, and transforms it. That's what Jesus' body says to us. The resurrection of Jesus, of his body, is God's deep affirmation of the goodness and the vital importance of the present created order. There are things you love about this world, and God loves them too, and God is not going to give them up. The world will be renewed by God. The resurrection of Jesus' body is what will happen when the creator comes to heal you. Your body, this whole world, our job as Easter people is not simply to bumble along trying to live the present life a little bit better until one day we decay and die and end up either in the grave or some disembodied heaven. That is not your job. We will be raised. To a new bodily life in God's new physical world. This world will be renewed and it will be filled with justice and beauty and freedom and life and truth. As Easter people, we are called to live our lives doing good works. In the biblical sense of good works. The Bible tells you to do good works. They don't earn your way into heaven. that they are your job to do once you come to Christ. You're to do good works. That's what it says all through the epistles. Do good things for the good of the city and for the good of the creation. Why? Because this is God's good creation. Broken. We are called to anticipate here and now the future. How do we do this? We do this by working for God's justice in the world now. Identify injustice and fight it. With every ounce of your being, even if it leads to your own crucifixion, which it probably will. Our job right now is to work for the health and the flourishing of the planet. Even if it means you're accused of being a Democrat and you don't want to be accused of being a Democrat. Fight for the health and flourishing of this planet, even if it changes your grocery bill. Fight for the health and flourishing of this thing that God loves so much. He died to renew it. Work for God's wise order and his exuberant freedom to come to birth in every square inch of this world. That is your job this side of the grave. Will you pray? Will you pray in the days to come about the ways in which God wants you to be an Easter person? Will you pray, God, how can I implement the achievement of Easter in this life that I live? How can I work in such a way that I am doing good works that anticipate the renewal of all things? Now, the last sentence of the gospel reading this morning, John 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that the Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus of Nazareth, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believing in Jesus, what? You may have life. What kind of life? Eternal life. The problem with us is we read that eternal life like Platonist. We think that John 3.16 means when we die, we float off into some life characterized as eternal that's disembodied. But in John's gospel, clearly over and over and over, and you can see this if you just can get free of your Platonist blinders. Over and over, eternal life and life in John's gospel is life here and now according to the rules of that heavenly dimension. Real life, here and now. This is the hope of the resurrection. And it comes by believing in Jesus. The Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus of Nazareth. Let's pray.